If you have a copy of Scripture in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 this morning, the book of Hebrews chapter 2 <clears throat> verse 10. This morning uh, the title of the message is Jesus, the founder of our salvation. Naturally our faith and everything that we are about as followers of Jesus Christ is all about Christ. And um, even as we just sang, in Christ alone, our faith, everything that we are, everything that we are about is to be focused around Christ as the centrality of, of who we are as believers and followers of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. One verse, Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The book of Hebrews gives us some of the most powerful descriptions of our Lord Jesus Christ, and verse 10 is no exception to this. And as we looked at last week, because of sin, man has fallen, Man is not crowned, and Christ stooped down to the glory of man. God came as a man, not to merely um, share in our humanity, but Christ came in order to transform our humanity. Now the question could be posed, how did Christ transform? How did Jesus transform humanity? And we would respond with, through his death. This is what the author of Hebrews is making clear. Verse 9 closes with the death of Christ. And verse 10 opens with, it was fitting. How in the world is it possibly fitting that God would die? Christianity has had many critics throughout the years, often because many can't understand that God would take on flesh and be crucified. This was the case for early Christians. It was difficult to understand that God was a suffering Savior. How could the God of the universe possibly suffer? And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul preached to the Corinthians when he said, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The fact of a Savior suffering was and often still is difficult for many people to grasp. How could such a person also be God? I mean, logically, if we think about it, it doesn't make sense. For example, even people that do not support the death penalty would say that an evil person surely deserves capital punishment. Rarely do people bat an eye when some sort of evil dictator who has murdered countless of people ends up dead. In fact, we often hold to the view that they deserve to die. However, let's say a good man who helped others, who gave to the poor, who loved those whose society rejected, who loved children, who, who served other people. Let's say that this person was executed. People would go crazy. No one would say, oh, that person deserved to die. And the author of Hebrews is saying just that. To the natural man, that makes no sense at all. 
the author says that the death of Jesus Christ was fitting. In fact, he claims that it was fitting for God to put his own son to death. It's scandalous to think that the, that the instrument of torture, this crucifixion, which meant you were cursed by God, that somehow God came as a man in the flesh and that God the Father then put his son to death and even more scandalous that God the Father put his own innocent son to death and that somehow it was fitting. That's scandalous to think about. But that's the gospel. That is exactly why the cross is an offense to people. That is, that is uh, written to believe Jesus was the Messiah, that, 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 that we, we have to come into this belief that he was the Messiah. However, unbelieving Jews would say, well, how could Jesus be the Messiah if he died? This makes no sense. The Messiah is coming as a conqueror. He's not coming to die. You say Jesus is the Messiah, but he's dead. And he died the death of a common criminal. Plus, he died a death that is shamefully cursed by God by hanging on a cross. You think that this man is the Messiah and the Savior? Give me a break. There's no way he can be the Messiah. And so the author of Hebrews is laying out the fact that the death of Jesus is fitting and only proves that he is the Messiah and the Savior and that the death of Jesus was how God would glorify Jesus and bring many sons to glory and how he is the founder of our salvation. In fact, the death of Jesus was part of God's eternal plan. And the goal is that the offense of the cross is removed and that the readers of Hebrews are emboldened to proclaim the cross and the power and the wisdom of God, not shy away from it, but rejoice in it. Now, when I uh, told my wife that I was preaching a sermon over one verse, she shook her head at me. And um, I'm not sure if it was in disbelief or if it was more, yeah, that sounds about like you. Um, at first, I thought, well, we'd have a sermon over verses 10 through 13. But then the more I studied it, the more I realized there's a lot here in verse 10. And then uh, I was doing some study and I read two sermons over verse 10 from Charles Spurgeon. And I thought, well, if Charles Spurgeon can preach two sermons over one verse, surely I can preach one. And so uh, we're having one sermon over this verse, verse 10. And I pray that as we walk out of here um, today later on, that we would have a deeper understanding of the cross and of our salvation coming from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And so the first thing I want us to see from this verse is this. The death of Jesus displays God's sovereign, eternal purpose and brings him to glory. The death of Jesus brings God's sovereign, or displays God's sovereign, eternal purpose and brings him glory. Verse 10 begins with, this uh, phrase, for it was fitting. And it's only fitting, the death of Jesus is only fitting if it is part of God's eternal purpose and if it brings him glory. Notice that not only does he say that it was fitting, but then the author writes, for whom and by whom 
all things exist. The idea is that this was not some sort of accident. Jesus did not go through suffering and death by mistake. If all things exist by God and for God, then even the suffering and the death of the Son of God must have, uh, uh, must have had a place in God's purpose. The cross does not stop the plan of God. The cross fulfills the plan of God. And the author is making it clear that God's plan was the cross. And that's no different than when Peter in the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 23 said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, some people would say, well, what is, I'm, I'm not sure what that verse is saying. It talks about his definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's just, it must just be saying that God simply knew ahead of time what would take place and he passively gave an endorsement to their behavior as his plan. That's not the meaning of definite plan and foreknowledge. In fact, it means to plan or plot in advance of acting. And in this case, that is the eternal purpose of God the Father was planned and determined beforehand to put His own Son to death. And yet God is not responsible for the sin of those who put His Son to death. This is a vital truth that the church must grab a hold of. In fact, it was important enough that Luke would repeat it in Acts chapter 4. Verses 27 and 28, when he said this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, some people would say, well, predestined doesn't mean predetermined. No, that's exactly what it means. That's what the word means in the Greek, predetermined. Listen, if we think that somehow the cross caught God off guard, then we're not worshiping the God of the Bible, but a God that we've made up in our own mind because nothing catches God off guard. And the cross was the very reason that Jesus came to the earth in the first place. Jesus makes this very claim Himself. He's praying to God the Father in John chapter 12, and He's speaking of the cross, and He says, but for this purpose I came to this hour. It is abundantly evident that through Scripture that the death of Jesus on the cross is a display of the sovereign, eternal purpose of God. And we know this from clear back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, when God said, I will put enmity between you and woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. But not only do we, do we see it as a part of God's sovereign plan, but we also notice that it brings God glory. How in the world can the death of His own Son bring Him glory? In the cross, we see the attributes of God put on full display. Now, when we think of the glory of God, often what we picture in our head is, is a light. And perhaps we think that because our mind goes to maybe Moses on Mount Sinai, 
And God says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by because no one can see my glory and live. And when Moses descends from the mountain, his face is radiant. In the Bible, glory is talked about often by bright light. And this word Shekinah, Shekinah glory of God is used. And so glory is an outward visible manifestation of what God is inwardly. And so everything that is put on display for us is ultimately some reflection of the glory of God. And when the author of Hebrews says that all things are for God and by God, he's saying that God is the first and the final cause of all things and that we know uh, of everything that we know in existence that God is the first and final cause of all those things. In Colossians, we read that by Christ, all things were created both in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. In Romans, Paul says that for him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever Amen in Romans 11.36. We're not saying that God is the author of evil. But we are also not saying that evil is not under God's sovereign decree. That somehow evil operates. We're not saying that somehow evil operates outside of God's sovereign control. In fact, the worst evil that was ever committed in the history of the world was where an innocent man was brutally crucified. His name was Jesus, and it was predetermined by God to take place. And yet those who committed this horrible act were held fully responsible for the act. The problem is we can't begin to wrap our finite brains around these things. We, we can't bring any kind of logical reconciliation to them. Simply, we must accept them as God revealed truth to us. Let's look at the phrase even a little more. Because for whom and by whom which all things exist also reveals to us that God is actively governing his creation. If all things are in existence by him and for him then nothing can happen apart from his governance of them. In other words, God is actively working all things together according to the counsel of His will. He is God. He does as He pleases. And no one can stop Him from doing as He pleases. And no one can question what He has done. If God is subjected to humanity, then He's not God. If God is somehow subjected to me, then He's not God. God is above all. He's over all. He is supreme and He directs all. Anything short of this is to deny the existence of God. Yet many Christians will say this. Well, God is sovereign over everything. I believe that God is sovereign over everything except my salvation. They will cry out, God is in control over all things except my ability to choose Him. And will say that to affirm God's sovereignty over salvation, they will say, well, that's a denial of free will. And it turns, that turns people into robots. Or it turns people into puppets. And that makes God the puppeteer. That's what some people say. In fact, there's hot, big debates over this very issue in, in many forms of Baptist history and, and even today in the Southern Baptist Convention. High debates over this very issue. In fact, we 
we have Baptist churches, free will Baptist churches, because of this very issue. This belief that says, well, it turns people into robots and puppets and God the puppeteer is nonsense. It's a complete misunderstanding of Scripture that is propagated by those who have an agenda of trying to destroy the doctrine of election by saying, well, the doctrine of election is not in the Bible. But the doctrine of election is clearly laid out in Scripture. God is either sovereign over all or God is not sovereign at all. He's either sovereign over everything in this world or He's not sovereign at all. He can't be sovereign over some things or over what we get to pick and choose on what God is sovereign over. Or He's not God. And so when we try to say, well, God is sovereign over this, but He's not sovereign over that, that makes you God and not Him God. God is sovereign over all things. Furthermore, if we do not believe that God has the capacity to change people's hearts without destroying their free will, then we might as well quit praying altogether. Because if God answers our prayers, then that means free agency of man has to be destroyed. Scripture is abundantly clear that God changes our hearts and He changes our will in order for us to go to heaven in the first place. Jesus clearly says, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. God authors that change in mankind and He authors the change of their will. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. However, if God cannot change our will without destroying our freedom, then we better not pray that anyone would ever come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. We can't pray for sinners to be converted to saints because that would violate their freedom. We can't pray for people to become obedient followers of Jesus Christ because that would make them machines or robots because that would violate their freedom. You see how crazy it sounds when we actually put it into perspective and we actually think about it? God governs all of His creatures and their actions or He is not God. God governs the actions of the wicked and the saints, or He is not God. And God governs the will of the sinner to make them a saint, or He is not God. He does this without removing the freedom of the sinner, because the sinner will always choose sin. Every single time. So when somebody says, oh, will you deny free will? No, I don't. The sinner will always choose sin. They will freely choose sin every single time. That's just the way it is. Because we are limited by our nature until God overcomes our will. I'm limited by my nature until God overcomes my will. If I have $20,000 and I say, you know what? I want to buy a new car for $20,000. I think I'm going to get that Lamborghini. I can't buy that Lamborghini. You know why? Because I only have $20,000. I'm limited by the amount of money I have. Our nature is limited by what we have as our nature. And our nature is sinful. And therefore, it is limited. God overcomes our will by His grace. And our salvation is secured. It is a complete work of God. We are not born again and somehow God, even though He governs every action, says, oh well, I don't know what to do now. God governs everything. 
every single action of his creature. And he does so. He even governs the actions of the wicked. And he does so without ever becoming the author of evil. If God does not govern all of his creatures, we're in bad shape. And there is no hope. And there is no such thing as God. And he is not in control. Therefore, the death of Jesus displays God's sovereign, eternal purpose. And it brings God glory. That's the only way it makes sense. Is if God is sovereignly orchestrating everything that takes place. Number two, the death of Jesus reveals to us who God is. The death of Jesus reveals to us who God is. By looking at the death of Christ on the cross, it brings to us revelation of who God is. Sometimes people will say things like, why doesn't God just forgive everyone? Or why doesn't why does blood have to be shed? Well, these questions usually stem from a misunderstanding of who God is. If God just forgave everyone, if God just forgave every sin ever on the face of this earth, that would mean that God is neither righteous nor just. To be just, it demands a penalty for a crime. When we break the law, a price must be paid, and we call that justice. If someone breaks into my house and murders my family, and they go before the judge, and the judge says, oh, that's okay, we all make mistakes, that'd be a miscarriage of justice. God is entirely just. Therefore, sin demands a penalty. And so the death of Jesus... To pay for the sins of people reveals to us that God is just. And that's what this verse says when it says it is fitting. Furthermore, God is entirely holy and entirely righteous. That means that sin can't enter his presence. And scripture clearly teaches us that Christ becomes sin for us. Not that he became like sin, but he became sin. Which again makes Jesus' death on the cross fitting as we read that the wrath of God was poured out on His own Son because He was sin. God hates sin. And all of God's elect, all of all the sins of God's elect was on Jesus. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God does not just overlook sin. We experience forgiveness of sin because Jesus bore the wrath of God on that cross that I should have borne. And He did not do this just on my behalf, but He he did not bear the wrath of God just for one person, and He didn't do it just for a small little group of people, but He bore the wrath of God in bringing many sons to glory, or we could say many children to glory. All of the sins of all of God's children for all of the time were piled on Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Furthermore, in the cross of Christ, we see God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus in the cross. God's holiness is on display And it upholds the demands of the law. And yet at the same time, He shows mercy to every single sinner. At the cross, we see the love and grace of God Almighty. 
on full display. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see God's love and grace revealed to us as Christ hangs on the cross to reconcile the world to Himself. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. As Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that though my God should die for me? The death of Jesus reveals so much to us about who God is, that He is love, that He is just, that He is merciful, that He is righteous, that He is holy, that He's filled with wisdom and grace and power, all revealed to us through the death of Jesus. We see who God is. Thirdly, the death of Jesus reveals His humanity. The death of Jesus reveals His humanity. It says that Jesus is the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now some people would say, well, I thought that Christ was already perfect. Then why does it say that He was made perfect? The answer is yes, He is perfect in all of His attributes. Christ is perfect. He is perfect in His obedience. However, in His qualification as the founder of our salvation, He had to experience the suffering that we go through as a result of the fall. In order to be our perfect substitute, He had to be without sin, but He also had to experience life in a fallen world. In order to be, uh, in order to be without sin, he had to come to a fallen world and experience the temptation of sin. In order to be our perfect high priest, he had to experience that temptation in all ways as we experience temptation and yet be without sin, which is what we will see in Hebrews chapter four. The idea of being made perfect is the idea of completion. In other words, it is the idea that Jesus was perfectly equipped to accomplish what he had to accomplish. Jesus suffered and was tempted to sin, but he was without sin. The pattern of temptation for Jesus is not the same pattern that we face. Because James says that we are tempted when we are carried away by our lust, but Jesus did not have a sin nature like we have. Humanly speaking, he was like Adam before the fall. Jesus experienced real temptation, just like Adam experienced real temptation. But the difference is, Jesus didn't sin. He endured. He didn't give up. Now, could Jesus have sinned? That's always a a question. Could Jesus have sinned? We're going to look at that in depth later. But my short answer is no. I don't believe so. We'll get there later. Not today. Later on in Hebrews. However, he did suffer and he was obedient even to the death of the cross and his suffering and his death revealed to us his humanity. We see that as he suffered, he was human and he died on the cross. God in the flesh suffered and died. Fourthly, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Now, some translations will say author of our salvations. Some will, I uh, think, say pioneer of our salvation. Some might even say trailblazer of our 
salvation. The Greek word is archegos. The idea is that it refers to someone who takes part in what they establish, that whatever it is speaking of originates with them. It's like a, it's like a mountain climbing, a mountain climber who's leading the pack. If you've ever watched uh, shows or, or anything like that, the mountain climbers out there are kind of leading the way and putting, putting in the little posts and all that, that he's leading the pack that follows behind him. He's making the footholds and, and extending the rope. That is why it's translated author or captain or leader or pioneer, founder. Jesus blazed the trail of salvation before all others. And as the founder of our salvation, he didn't set up in the rear for battle. He was on the front lines. He led the troops. He's the example to follow. He goes before us. He's leading us to salvation. John Owen said this, that Jesus went before us in three ways. Before us in obedience, he completely obeyed and fulfilled the law of God. He went before us in suffering. He left an example for us to follow in his steps. And he went before us into glory. Jesus has revealed to us through his resurrection, through his death, that he defeated the grave. And because he went to glory through suffering, he will take his people to glory through the same course as the author of Hebrews says. He's leading many sons to glory. Which leads to my final point this morning. Through the death of Jesus, God is bringing many sons to glory. Through the death of Jesus, God is bringing many sons to to glory. There's this word there that says many. And that's a that's a representation of a great number of people. The Bible clearly states that there are many people that will be saved. Charles Spurgeon held the belief that the amount of people saved would be greater than the number of people that are damned. The fact of the matter is we have no evidence in Scripture that says only a select few will be saved. But we have ample evidence in Scripture that, that there will be uh, many that will be saved, that the number will be great. I say this because some people try to falsely accuse those to, that hold to the biblical doctrine of election as claiming that only few people will be saved, which is far from the truth. Now what exactly does it mean when it says it's bringing them to glory? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know what all that entails. We know that Jesus prayed for those that are His, to be with Him in glory. Paul said that we will also be revealed with Him in glory. I would think at the very least it means that we will have a glorious resurrected body and we will be free from sin and sickness and death and disease. We will be with Him in glory. It means that we will be with Christ and we will praise and that we will serve Him throughout eternity. In 1 John, we read that we will be like Him because we... Uh, We'll, uh, we will be just like He is, it says. So bringing many sons to glory is at least spending eternity in heaven with Christ, being like Christ. But how do we know for sure that we're going to make it? How do we know we're going to make it there? I can't remember who said it. But they said if your salvation depends on you, you're going to lose it. Look what this verse tells us. 
God the Father is bringing many sons to glory through the death of Jesus the Son. That's what it says. God the Father is bringing many sons to glory, can be translated children, bringing many children to glory through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the completed work of Christ and the continuing work of God the Father that gets you to heaven. Guess what? It doesn't depend on you. If it did, you're not going to get there. If it depends on me, I'm not getting there, folks. I hate to tell you. I mean, you may think I'm a good person, but I'm not. I'm wretched. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm nasty on the inside. I'm, I'm a filthy wretch that's been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And God has saved me. And guess what? He is continuing to save me because I will get there. He's working it out in my life. My sanctification is a process of becoming more and more like His Son. And one day, oh glorious day, I will be just like Jesus. And I'll get there. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on God and the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. It never depends on us. It says that He's bringing us to glory. Bringing us to glory. You know that word bringing is the exact same word that's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the, you know the parable. He brings the man to the inn who's too weak to get himself there. The, the, the man can't get there. He's beat up and lying in the ditch. Bloodied. Left for dead, all those people passing by. He can't get there to the end by himself. And the man brings him to the end who's too weak to get himself there. The Samaritan did for the man what he could not do for himself. Same word. Exact same word in the Greek. That's what God's doing for us. Doing for us through the death of His Son what we cannot do for ourselves. It's a work of God and it's secured by the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's for His children. And guess what? You can take it to the bank. He will succeed. Because He always succeeds. Because His will always goes forth and it cannot be stopped in spite of Satan, in spite of this world, and in spite of my own flesh and everything else, He will succeed. All that the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus says, will be mine. And guess what? There is nothing that can stop it from happening. Why? Because God the Father is God. And Jesus the Son paid the price. And He's God. And the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in my life when I become a follower 
of Jesus Christ. He's God. And it all depends on God. That's the blessed work of the Trinity. That's the whole point. The Trinity is actively working to bring everyone that is to come to salvation to salvation. And that's what God says. And there's nothing that can stop it. Because the Trinity is actively working to make it happen. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Do you know Him? Do you know Him today? Jesus, the founder of our salvation, suffered and bled and died. He was a perfect Savior in order to bring us to glory. I love how John Calvin puts it, speaking of the exchange that takes place in the institutes of the Christian religion. This is the wonderful exchange which, out of His measureless benevolence, He has made with us. That becoming Son of Man with us, He has made us sons of God with Him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. What a glorious exchange. One that I don't deserve. One that you don't deserve. How could I possibly deserve This wretch, how could I deserve for Jesus Christ to take his righteousness and put it on me? I don't deserve it. Oh, but thank you. Thank you, God, for being the founder of my salvation. Thank you for paying the price for me. Thank you that I could have such a great exchange. And I ask you this morning, have you experienced that exchange? It's available to everyone who will surrender their life to Christ, place their trust in Him, let go of what you think is righteousness, and confess to God that you're a sinner. And that you deserve his wrath. Trust in the death of Jesus as the payment for your sins. And the cross will become powerful to you. The cross isn't foolish to the believer. It's not foolish to me. It's not foolish to you this morning if you're a believer. Because you understand it. You understand that a price had to be paid and that God poured out His wrath on His only Son so that we could experience salvation to bring us to salvation. It is powerful to us to the point that we boast in it. And in Jesus, the founder of our salvation. And I simply ask you this morning, is He that? For you today. Is Jesus the founder of your salvation? I'm not asking you if you believe that 
This was ordained before the foundations of the world. If you want to have that conversation, I'll have that conversation with you later. Do you know him? The founder of your salvation. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Don't we get it? Hebrews 2.10 tucked away so that we know that it's all about Jesus. It's all about His glory. He suffered and died to bring glory. Do you know Him today? I don't know. Maybe God's spoken to you in a different way this morning. I'm going to be standing down front. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to the message this morning. If you feel like like you need to respond, you think, well, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe maybe you've never experienced that exchange. Maybe you want to know more about that. I'd be glad to talk with you. Maybe this morning you would say, you know what, uh, maybe he's spoken to you in a different way. And, and maybe you need to be in prayer. Or maybe you need to be taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. However he's spoken to you, I want to give you the opportunity to respond uh, this morning. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you or talk with you or whatever it might be um, this morning because we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And I'm going to give you that chance. Let's close with prayer. Father, I